So this morning, uh, we'll be uh, preaching out of Isaiah chapter 40. So if you've brought your own Bibles, you're welcome to open up uh, to Isaiah 40. Um, But first, I want to start by painting a a picture for you to unlock a memory that many of us have. For I believe we've all traveled in some capacity, whether it's for work or for holiday, whether we've gone just an hour or two down the road or flown halfway across the world, we've all probably had to just go somewhere and taken time to pack, to prepare. You take time to gather your supplies if you're going camping, to make sure you tell the right people if you're going, whether they need to come by, water your plants while you're gone, or just they need to know your coordinates because you're out in the back country. Perhaps you need to take time to set your itinerary. You're traveling from place to place. You need to make sure your train and plane tickets are booked, hotels, wherever you're staying. You carefully pack, trying to anticipate your needs, checking the weather, the 14-day forecast. Maybe you're going abroad and you need to exchange money. When we prepare for something, we take time. We're intentional. We're not simply sitting, waiting for the day to arrive. We have a long run-up to make sure that when the time to travel arrives, we are good to go. No last-minute panic. This is an active waiting And it is active waiting that shapes a lot of the scriptures, especially in Isaiah. For when we arrive at Isaiah chapter 40, we notice a sharp turn in the book in its message. For there is about a 150-year gap between Isaiah chapter 1 to 39 and chapters 40 to 60. The first half of the book is about judgment. God is speaking to the people of Judah, calling them back to his covenant, calling them back to his law, saying, if you do not, I will bring about judgment and exile. And in the intervening years between the final words of uh, Isaiah 39 and the first of Isaiah 40, we see that God follows through. His justice is absolute. He gave the people of Judah time and time again to repent. They did not, so he took them out into exile by the nation of Babylon. And so for 150 years, the people of Judah, they have been waiting for a new word from God. They've been waiting for him to break his silence and say something. And they probably felt an incredible distance from God. They probably felt that being in a strange land under the rule of a strange nation who worships strange gods, it might have felt like a dark time for them, separated from everything familiar, everything that they loved, everything that was home. And it is into this dark place that God's word finally comes to them, that God's word speaks to them. And here is what God had to say to his people, Judah, living in exile. So Isaiah chapter 40, we'll read the first 11 verses. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because of the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. 
The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is the word of our Lord. So when God breaks his silence, when God speaks to his people in exile, living in a dark time, his first words are comfort, comfort. He extends this word to them, saying the time of judgment is over. You have learned your lesson in exile, Judah. You have learned that God is a God of justice, that he holds his covenants seriously. He upholds his law But that time of punishment is now over. The time of exile has come to an end. For God is demonstrating that he has the power to judge. He has the power to send his people into exile, but he also has the power to bring them back. And that is what he will demonstrate now. He has proven his justice. Now he will prove that he is a redeemer and a restorer. And he's going to do this in a very public and visible fashion. He's not going to do anything hidden. There's going to be no secrets, no small, subtle tricks. Where we see that the words of Isaiah says that every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, make straight a highway for your God. This is going to be a coming of the Messiah, of God's Savior, that no one can miss. Because you will be able to see it coming from miles and miles away, and it will be an easy road for God to walk, flat, straight, and level. This is God's promise to his people. Comfort will come. It will not be hidden. It will be visible for all to see. No one has to fear missing out. This is the work of God for his people. And then he invites them to reflect on what this promise would be based on. Why is this a trustworthy message? Why should you believe that this God who has sent you into exile is now going to bring about comfort and peace and restoration to a broken and fractured people? Well, the answer is that it's not based on human merit. For the prophet refers to people like grass, like flowers of the field that wither and fall, something that is just so temporary that under a couple days of scorching heat, we all know that our lawns turn brown in an absolute instant, that if you're not staying on top of watering your flowers, they wilt and fall. It does not take much for these things to die and perish and be blown away in the wind. And the prophet compares God's people to these grass and these flowers because they have not been faithful A quick survey of the entire Old Testament shows that that is exactly the problem that the people of Israel have. They cannot uphold their side of the covenant. They cannot keep God's law. They cannot worship him alone. They are constantly going after other gods, pursuing their own selfish desires. And so their faithfulness is like grass. It's just useless, good for nothing. But that is so good for us to know because it reminds us that God's action is not dependent on our ability to come to him and prove that we are deserving of salvation, that we are deserving of comfort. Because if it worked that way, we would never receive it. We would never get salvation because we 
are just so unable to live well after God. So then who does it rely on? Who does this salvation, this redemption, this comfort rely on? It relies entirely on God, on the power of God. And it comes in two ways. The first, he says, see the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. This is a strong God, a powerful God, a God who is able to bring a foreign nation in to judge his people, but is also able to take them out, to take them back home. This is a God who will not be defeated by other gods, by other impressive empires. This is a strong, powerful God who can do what he wants for his people. Nothing will prevent him from coming to the people of Judah and bringing them home. But this strong God also has another side. He's like a gentle shepherd, gathering lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. It's such a tender image of care and compassion and nurturing, especially the image of a lamb, one so young, so dependent on its mother, on its shepherd for everything. And so God shows that he has the power to save a warrior who can liberate his people but also that he can tend to their daily needs with compassion and love. He's a gentle shepherd who meets them where they are and gives them care. And so the prophet is reminding these people that, remember, it is not your faithfulness, it is God's faithfulness. And you should look to God for everything, for strength, for power, for love, for gentleness. They don't need to look anywhere else for salvation, for their daily needs to be fulfilled, because God can do it all for them. There is nothing and no one beyond God that they need to look to. And this is imagery that I think we can start to feel that, yes, I I identify with this, needing a strong God who is also loving and compassionate and gentle. And this imagery would have been keenly desired by the people in the first century, right? Right at Jesus' time, right before his ministry was starting, they would have felt this same sense, this same desire for salvation too. For while they were living in their homeland, they were still under the thumb of another foreign empire. For since the prophet Isaiah's words, Babylon had passed away, Persia had risen in its stead. Then comes Alexander the Great and the Greeks, and then finally the Romans. They simply seem to be exchanging one foreign power, one oppressor, one occupier for another. Wondering when, when will we finally be set free to worship our God as we see fit, to govern our lands according to his rule, not having to listen to foreign emperors and dictators? When, God, will this comfort be finally realized? And this is the mood that John the Baptist steps into. And if you are following along in your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1, the first eight verses. This is how Mark introduces his gospel of Jesus. It says, In the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothes made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. 
After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We can see the first verse of Mark's gospel as being a bit of an extended title, taking time to share this is exactly what to expect. This is the good news, the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it was written in Isaiah. Mark is inviting his readers to look back, to think back to those words that they probably all knew so well from Isaiah, those words that they were waiting to be realized. And Mark is saying, it's now. Now is when God is going to fulfill his promise completely and bring about that comfort, that deliverance. This is what you've been waiting for, he says. And it starts in the wilderness. The words of Isaiah start in the wilderness. The words of Mark start in the wilderness. The ministry of Jesus, the messenger, comes out of the wilderness. For throughout scripture, wilderness is the place where God has gathered his people for times of preparation and testing. We see that Moses, before he could deliver the people from, from a slavery, had to spend time in the wilderness. Before Israel could then go into the promised land, they spent time in the Sinai wilderness, meeting God at Mount Sinai to receive the covenant. This was a place to encounter God intimately, to build and establish relationship and trust before going on to receiving that great reward of the promised land. And so what John the Baptist is doing coming out of the wilderness is he's promising a new exodus, a new movement out of slavery, out of exile into God's promised land. And so this is a chance for God's people to come to John the Baptist to reaffirm their commitment to God, to reestablish their covenant relationship and say, God, we are your people. We have been unfaithful, but you have been faithful to us. And so John is calling them in preparation for a mighty action of deliverance that is coming. We need to prepare. John calls his audience to prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah by undergoing repentance. Repentance is a return. It's a 180-degree move. He's calling them to return to the covenant, return to their relationship with God, for the kingdom of God is coming to them, so let's be ready for its arrival. And in all of this, John points to something greater, something greater than himself, greater than his own ministry. He's pointing ahead to someone whose sandals he is unworthy to tie. The lowest work of a servant, John says, I'm not even worthy to do it. That is how great the coming Messiah is. John says, I just baptized with water, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Everything John does points to something better, greater, more fantastic than you can imagine. But in anticipation of that requires action, requires preparation. In Scripture, waiting is not idle. Waiting for the coming of God requires that action. For at the Exodus, the Hebrews, they stood up when they ate, belt fastened, staff in hand, ready to go as soon as God said it was time to go. In the wilderness, before they entered into the promised land, they lived in tents, they didn't build houses of wood and stone. They lived mobile so that they could be ready to go into the promised land as soon as God said it was time, even though it took them two tries. 
And so for this new exodus, out of slavery, out of Egypt, out of exile, out of sin and death and darkness, into the promised land, into good standing with God, a readiness is required. Now, when we pack to go on holiday or a work trip, we're usually very precise, very calculated in what we bring. But when you've reached the end of your trip and it's time to go home, at least in my experience, it's a lot more chaotic. You just throw everything into your suitcase. You're no longer rolling everything into tight bundles and making sure it's all in your spot. You're like, just get it in, sit on it, put the zipper up. We're just going to get home. And usually I forget a handful of things behind. Because when we're going home, well, everything you have is already there. When you're originally going on your holiday, you would keenly feel if you only brought five pairs of socks instead of six. But when you go home, you know you've got another 20 in the drawer already. So leaving behind a pair doesn't really matter. We don't feel the same pressure when we go home to make sure everything is in order because we know when we arrive there, all of our needs will be looked after. We know where to find everything. It's comfortable. It's familiar. Our people are there. And Jesus' ministry invites us home. It invites us to leave things behind and to trust that he, our home, will have everything we need. To trust that Jesus is one who is strong enough to save but gentle and tender enough to care for our everyday needs. We're called to leave things behind because we are called to trust that God is the one who has everything we need to know who our God is, to know that he is our savior and our salvation. For when Jesus calls his disciples at the beginning of ministry, they leave everything to follow him, family, jobs, their hometown. They put it all aside, trusting that if they go along with Jesus, that they can forget things, that they can leave things behind because going forward with Jesus means that you will be taken care of. This is the good news of the gospel that we have a God who cares for us, that we have a Savior who looks after our entire beings. And what it invites from us as a response is to draw close to him, to know him, to sit in his presence. John Calvin sums up the gospel in this way. He says of the gospel being good news, he says, this expression includes the sum of our happiness, which consists solely in the presence of God. It brings along with it an abundance of blessing, and if we are destitute of it, we must be utterly miserable and wretched. And although every kind of blessing are richly enjoyed by us, yet if we are estranged from God, everything must tend to our destruction. For John Calvin, he sees that there is a sacredness to everything that we don't set things outside of God's power, outside of our relationship with him, and say, well, these are the holy spiritual things, and these are the worldly things. No, John Calvin says that we must consider all things as being under God's sacred rule, and that we don't separate anything outside, but that if we separate ourselves from God, that is when things go wrong. We are called to see how God is at work in every aspect of our lives, how he is calling us to repent of beliefs, of understandings, of actions, to turn everything that we have to him, 
leaving nothing outside of his saving grace. And so in that way, repentance is asking us to set aside our independence, the ways that we think we can be self-sufficient from God. Because in what ways are we unwilling to let God work in our lives? Those things that are weighing us down from full commitment to God and his promises because we think we can do it on our own. And perhaps these things are our own fear, a deep anger that we have, addiction, self-righteousness, our work, family, sports, extracurriculars, things that we think this is mine, I'm going to handle it. So what has captured your attention so intensely that it's become a distraction, that it has turned you away from orienting your life to God's faithfulness out of a desire to be independent from him? And these are not things that we should ignore, then shun away, because things like family, work, all the things that bring us joy in life, we're not meant to simply just surrender them and say, I can deal with this no longer. I must give myself fully to God in the church. No, we take them with us. And we say, God, help this not be a distraction, but something that can be a blessing to others. And so this takes work. It takes work for us to allow God to liberate us from our own desires, from our own vices. But the good news is that our salvation does not depend on us, does not depend on our ability to commit to God day after day. Instead, it depends on God's ability to commit to us day after day, and that is a sure thing. For brothers and sisters, God has chosen you to be his people long before you chose him. We love because God first loved us. And so as we wait for the second coming of Jesus, we can feel keenly what Isaiah's audience felt, what the people at John's time felt. For we are again waiting, waiting for the second advent of our Savior, his second arrival. And we can feel that there is that darkness, that we are not exactly quite home because we do see war, death, destruction, poverty, sickness, Things that tell us we are not home yet. But as we wait, as we wait for the coming of Jesus Christ that second time to completely restore all things, we are called to be active in our waiting, to continually reorient our lives from the things of this world to the things of God, to hold fast to his promises of salvation because they are good promises. And so we are called to be ready. And this is not a threat. This is not a condition of salvation, but an encouragement to surrender to the work that God is doing in our lives because he is faithful to carry it out. And so that is his invitation to you this morning to actively wait and let God orient your heart to him continually. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to proclaim through his death and resurrection. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are good and faithful. We are so grateful that amidst the unfaithfulness of people, generation after generation, you reaffirmed your commitment to salvation. As we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus in just over a week's time, 
May we be reminded that it is a great gift of grace that you gave us. That rather than inviting us to come and rise up to your level of holiness, you humbled yourself, you humbled your son to come to take on our flesh, our weakness, so that we might be saved through him. We are so incredibly grateful, Almighty God, and may you work in our hearts this gratitude so that we may live a life well that shares the gospel message with our neighbors, our coworkers, those we meet at school, all those that we interact, that they may know and see that we are a people who are waiting for you to bring home and heaven to us, but that while we wait, we allow you to work and transform in our lives through this message of the gospel. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.